Welcome to the Rooted Youth Ministry Podcast, which aims to advance gospel-centered youth ministry by equipping and empowering youth ministers and parents to faithfully disciple students towards lifelong faith in Jesus Christ. The Rooted Youth Ministry Podcast is part of the Rooted Family of Podcasts, which also includes Ask Alice, All About Boys, and Thanos to Theos. The audio from this episode was recorded during our 2020 micro-conferences. And to learn more about our upcoming 2021 conference on October 7th through 9th, visit www.rootedministry.com. This workshop is entitled Law and Gospel in Youth Ministry and is by David Zoll. David Zoll is the founder and director of Mockingbird Ministries and serves as the editor-in-chief of their blog. He also has experience in youth ministry, and he now works at Christ Episcopal Church in Charlottesville, Virginia, where he resides with his wife and three children. So it's a pleasure to invite him to speak on this topic, especially since he's authored a book on the topic of law and gospel. So I'm sure he has much to tell us about both the balance and also the fulfillment of Christ in all the law and what that means for our youth and student ministry. Let's pray for him together as we open up this touchy and yet all-important topic of the law and the gospel. Father, we thank you for David Zoll and Mockingbird Ministries and the friendship we have with them. We thank you for how you've made them a vehicle of grace in the gospel more and more. God, I pray that you would be with David Zoll as he speaks to us on this topic of law and gospel to understand the truths that we need to know as people tasked with loving and leading teens to see the fulfillment of Christ themselves. Speak to us and equip us through the preaching of your word. We thank your son's name. Amen. Well, hello, Rooted. It is uh, a real pleasure to be addressing you today. I've always wanted to go to a Rooted conference. I've been a real cheerleader since the very beginning, Um, and I never thought that this would be the way that I'd attend, but here we are. Um, Thanks for bearing with uh, me and with us during this um, strange time. Um, the, The subject of my workshop today is Law and Gospel in Youth Ministry. Law and gospel in youth ministry. Now these are, the word law and the word gospel, they're quite, you know, familiar words in uh, the Christian world, and especially if you're a person engaged in ministry. But I thought we'd start to dive into what the distinction between the two is today and how that might play out in youth ministry. I was actually a youth minister for uh, five years, and I consider that to have been sort of the birthplace or, or really the the, 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 the school, um, some of the most important times of my life, but also the, the real school in which I learned uh, what um, ministry was, what life was, and uh, I just cannot uh, think more highly of your vocation and what you are doing with students. Now, I'm sure a few years ago you saw when the New York Times Magazine ran a long article asking, why are more teenagers than ever suffering from severe anxiety? It was a very heart-wrenching as well as perceptive article. It's definitely worth seeking out, even though 2017 feels like another universe. Um, But what Benoit Denizé-Lewis, who wrote it, he profiled a bunch of young people, adolescents, who were suffering from debilitating anxiety. And they quickly figured out that many of these students, both uh, men and women, boys and girls, are afraid of failure. Uh, He quoted uh, Sunia Luthar, a professor of psychology at ASU, who said, these kids are incredibly anxious and perfectionistic. 
but there's contempt and even scorn for the idea that kids who have it all might be hurting. For many of these young people, the single biggest stressor is that they, quote, never get to the point where they can say, I've done enough, and now I can stop. There's always one more activity, one more AP class, one more thing to do in order to get into a top college. Kids have a sense that they're not measuring up. The pressure is relentless, and it's getting worse. Now, they're talking there about high school students, but the pressure, as we know, it filters down into, into middle school. In, in fact, even down into elementary school for more and more kids. What they're talking about is a performancism, which seems to be almost fundamental to this period of, uh, of activity in a, in a young person's life. Performancism, just the idea that you are your performance. There's no difference between you and your transcript. Uh, this is exacerbated by social media, as we know. Um, but it, 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 teenage life has always been fraught with a degree of anxiety, guilt, worry, stress, and judgment because it's a time of identity formation, a time of figuring out who on earth you are. There was a more tragic form of this a few years ago when the University of Pennsylvania um, witnessed six, I think, uh, student suicides over a 13-month stretch. And in response, they formed a task force to study the mental health on campus. Their final report cited something called penface, which is the practice of acting happy and self-assured when sad or stressed. Penface, the authors of the report at UPenn, uh, surmised that it derives from the perception that one has to be perfect in every academic, co-curricular, and social endeavor. Now again, that was 2014, and we're living in 2020. We're living in a time where just two weeks ago, the CDC released a report that kids between the ages of, I think, 18 and 25, a quarter of them have con seriously considered hurting themselves during the pandemic. And indeed, spending excessive amounts of time, the, the pandemic has sort of pushed us all online, so all we see is this competitive performancism. Now, if you're a youth minister, you know what I'm talking about. I don't really have to explain it. But what I'm describing from a theological point of view is a culture of law. The culture of adolescence, the culture of the youth, is a culture of law, and it's, it's, been, it's escalated, it's amplified by the mediated uh, nature of our phones and our relationships and technology. And it's a situation, a culture in which the gospel is sorely needed. So there I've used those words, the law and the gospel again. Let's go back. Let me give you a little bit of uh, background in terms of what, what this means and why it matters. Well, the first person to really use the phrase, the distinction between the law and the gospel, or to make a big, big deal of it. Well, you could say it was St. Paul, who was paraphrasing Jesus. You could say it was Augustine, who was really taking what Paul wrote. But the way that we quite understand it, the way that I want to talk to you about today, really has to do with Martin Luther, the great reformer. In the 16th century, in fact, he just considered this discovery of the distinction between the law and the gospel to be his great discovery. It was at the heart of what he wanted to uh, convey in the Protestant Reformation. All the stuff about indulgences, all the stuff about clergy, all the stuff about 
you know, the sacraments, it was for him, it was that, that was downstream from the distinction between the law and the gospel. Uh, which is, for him, it was the distinction between the righteousness of the law and the righteousness of the gospel, or that which can be earned by man versus that which is given by God. Prior to his great realization, Luther had told his friends, he said, I regarded both God's law and his gospel as the same thing and held that there was no difference between Christ and Moses except the times in which they lived and their degrees of perfection. When I realized that the law was one thing and the gospel another, I broke through and was free. Now again, perhaps this distinction uh, semantically is... um, between the law that convicts and the gospel that frees, we almost take it for granted today, but its importance really cannot be overstated, not then and not now either. So the distinct, this distinction between the law and the gospel, it grew in such prominence in Luther's thinking that in his commentary on Galatians in 1535, he went so far as to say that the distinction between the law and the gospel is the highest art in Christendom. Virtually the whole of the scriptures and the understanding, the whole of theology depends on a true understanding of the law and the gospel. Now that is some strong words. Now before I jump into what on earth is he actually talking about, um, bear in mind that uh, this is not actually that popular of a, of a topic today. It's kind of gone out of fashion for a variety of reasons. In fact, the, the law gospel hermeneutic, as it's called, the, the lens through which we view scripture, theology, life, etc., it's proven no more immune to abuse than any other great theological concept. Proponents uh, have sometimes mistakenly given the impression that law and gospel divides the Bible in half, equating the Old Testament with law and the New Testament with the gospel. It doesn't. Or that it dismisses whole books or chapters as strictly one or the other, in effect, in effect sort of shackling the text and, you know, the one to whom the text refers. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, the law and gospel distinction has less to do with imposing a straitjacket on the Bible than engaging with a living God. If anything, reading the Bible through the lens of the law and got a law, this distinction, it safeguards the word of God from being read predominantly or exclusively as an instruction manual. And those of you who work with adolescents or young people know that it can, how, one of the great questions is how can I get this young person to read the Bible as anything other than a rule book, because that's not really what it is. Um, this, it, it's, this distinction safeguards the word uh, and keeps it as a living instrument of the Spirit, which proclaims God's work in the world on behalf of sinners in need of saving. Indeed, the distinction between the law and the gospel is a very powerful explanation of how the Bible doesn't just sit there but it reaches out and grasps us, it shakes us, it transforms us, it frees us, it kills us, and makes alive. So what on earth is it then? Well, at the risk of oversimplification, Luther believed that God had spoken to human beings and continues to speak to them in two words, law and gospel. These words are distinct from one another, but not independent. In fact, they, they sort of, it's a dynamic the basic demarcation is straightforward. 
The law tells us what we ought to do. The gospel tells us what God has done. The law shows us that we need to be forgiven. The gospel announces that we have been forgiven. The law paves the way for the gospel by revealing our sin, our plight, our brokenness, our need. And the gospel proclaims good news to those who've been struck down by the law. Of course, there's more to it than that. What most of us think of when we think of the law in religious terms is what I would call capital L, law of God. The oughts and ought nots that we find spelled out in the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount. We think of the great commands of God. Don't steal. Don't murder. Do not worship idols. Love God with all your heart, mind, and strength. The law, in this sense, is good. It traces the shape of holiness. And in doing so, it reveals us to be a stubborn and obstinate people fundamentally actually turned away from the right choices and the proper feelings and the good life, even from God himself. Ultimately, the law brings humankind face to face with death, for it reveals our sin, and the wages of sin is death, as we read in Romans. But Luther also recognized the law refers to a kind of overarching principle of life in the world, a kind of elemental force that we all experience every hour of every day especially as teenagers. It's present whenever we experience accusation and constraint or control and condemnation. It is present whenever we are relying on something to justify ourselves, to to grant us some form of enoughness. We are leaning on the law, some form of it. This means that the law is at work on us even when we aren't actually hearing specific divine commands. It isn't so much what the law says that causes us to lie awake at night, but how we hear it. What do I mean? Well, one of my favorite illustrations of this is in Calvin and Hobbes, which I'm sure you're familiar with, the comic strip, where Hobbes, the tiger, the pretend tiger, asks his friend Calvin if he's planning to make any New Year's resolutions. And Calvin responds, resolutions? Me? Just what are you implying? That I need to change? Well, buddy, as far as I'm concerned, I'm perfect the way I am. So although Hobbes has just asked a simple question, he hasn't issued a command, Calvin hears an accusation. The accusation being, your personality could use some work. And the irony of the strip is that Calvin's reaction reveals just how much he is in need of improvement. So language like how to tell the law, if then, that if then construction often signals the law's presence. If you obey the rules, then you will get dessert. But the law cannot be boiled down to a grammatical formula, as Calvin has realized. Depending on the context, what one person hears as a prohibition, another hears as permission. Take, for example, if you see him again, you will be in trouble. If you tell that to your your teenage daughter about her boyfriend, it's likely to sound like like an unfair ban. But spoken to someone who's in an abusive relationship who cannot break free, it might sound like grace and freedom. Martin Luther said that the law is a constant guest in our conscience. And again, this isn't just for grown-ups. This is for youth. That, that little L law is the air we breathe as human beings. The default setting, the quid pro quo that characterizes our internal life as well as our external one. Again, especially when you're in high school. 
Its underlying logic is familiar to us. To get approval, you have to achieve. This is what the New York Times is talking about in that initial article. Behavior precedes belovedness. Climb the ladder or die. Or else, excuse me. So no wonder Hebrews tells us that the law is inscribed on the conscience. Now we see this divine demand on the human being reflected concretely in countless demands that we devise for ourselves, religious or not. What we might call the little L law. The new kid at your youth group or who shows up on Zoom may not have given much thought to the Sermon on the Mount, yet she is likely on intimate terms with the condemning echoes issuing from YouTube. Thou shalt be skinny, thou shalt be successful, thou shalt be independent, thou shalt be self-actualized. She has long since grown accustomed to the internalized voice of a demanding parent that feeling of never quite being enough that drives so much of a teenage exhaustion and isolation and alienation. So, because she is, after all, just like you and me. In this light, sometimes the, the secular world or the, the, the world out there beyond youth group is, is viewed as an escape from the, from the moral strictures of religion. But of, as we all know, the secular world can be just as condemning and judgmental, if not more so, than the religious one. Thou shalt be authentic, which is something that is so important to, to young people and always has been. That is actually a crueler taskmaster than thou shalt not bear false witness because who knows what authenticity actually is. Am I authentic now? How about now? Uh, so if, we're, if we have a sort of a high view, and usually as a teenager you do sort of have a high view of your own potential and your own agency, um, when that's wedded uh, to a lot of um, shoulds out there, the result can be crazy-making. We take, take busyness as an example. When asked how we are doing, we used to say fine or well, but today, as a number of commentators have noted, the default response is busy. And we're not lying. If you look at your, you know, that junior and high school's uh, schedule, and not just in the sort of high-achieving enclaves of the East Coast, if you, pretty much everywhere, you'll see how much, how overbooked they are. Uh, smartphones and similar devices have, have chased away the idleness that once characterized society um, and quickened the pace of life, even in a pandemic. I mean, when we started this lockdown, um, the quarantine, there was, a, there was a sigh of relief as people sort of took a break that has then kind of, People have figured out ways to fill up their time since then. Because, you see, busyness is more, of, more than a description of, of how we're doing. It's one of our, our culture's predominant indicators of worth and value. It's a measure of personal righteousness. It's a form of law. Thou shalt be busy. The implication being, if we're not overoccupied, we are inferior to those who are. And as with all law-based barometers of self-worth, like beauty, wealth, influence, youth, etc., there is no enough. So the attempt to justify yourself by works of the law, if they're actions, attributes, whatever, um, that's what the Bible calls works righteousness. It's the default mode of human operation, not just those who identify as religious. The law reigns over all creation, and the question is not if, but which form a person subscribes to. It's that great Bob Dylan lyric of, you're going to have to serve somebody. So this is uh, what I'm trying to lay out here is that the air we breathe, the air that the teenagers in your groups breathe, is the air of the law. 
the world of social media, of course, uh, is, is, is just one illustration of this after another. And what we find is the nature of the law is that it is never able to bring about what it calls for. In fact, it often creates that which it seeks to avoid. Like a book being banned is often a triumph for the marketing division of a publisher, publishing house. Or uh, those who are trying going on a diet, they may lose weight under pressure from friends and family, but they almost always gain it back and then some. The, Paul says in Romans, the law increases the trespass, and that's part of what he means here. But then you think of social media and you think about the ways that we edit our personalities and lives to get sort of hoped-for response or love from other people. And uh, uh, when that actual response, if it does come, it feels hollow because we know that's not who we actually are. The law cannot actually get you to love me. There's no surprise that social scientists continue to tell us that the more time we spend on social media, the happier we perceive our friends to be and the sadder we are as a consequence. Of course, we love the law because it promises us domain. It puts the keys to our well-being in our own hands. If I can just do X, Y, or Z, then I will get the results I want. If I can just be a certain kind of person or project those qualities publicly, then I will be loved. Think about it. In youth group, we have Christian versions of this. If I can just be this form of Christian or this pious or this, this many quiet times or go to this many retreats, well, then I will sort of be climbing some ladder of regard that, of course, even if you're a youth minister trying desperately not to, uh, to, to, to flatten all the ladders and bring everyone in together at the foot of the cross, it's still very difficult to get teenagers to think of life in any other terms than hierarchical. Um, there's sort of a, a double bind at work here because you, you talk to the most high-achieving person you know and, or the, the, the most successful youth minister you know. And you'll always hear some frustration over the truth that, uh, you know, the, the higher you climb, the longer the ladder gets. There's a double bind at work. So that's the law. And that is distinct from the gospel, which means good news. News is not command. Command comes in an imperative voice. Do this. Or it's heard that way. But news comes in an indicative voice. This has been done. For Christians, of course, the good news is Jesus Christ, who died and rose again, taking the whole of God's wrath upon himself and setting us free. The gospel announces that on account of Christ's death and resurrection, we are justified, made enough by grace through faith, not by what we do or even by who we are, but by what Christ has done and who he is. This gospel, this good news, it's a gift with no strings attached, a great and glorious surprise that our guilt, our not-enoughness, our brokenness, our need, our malice, our shortcomings, they have, they have been atoned for. And the deepest judgment, the judgment that we live in fear of, it has been satisfied, opening up reconciliation, uh, opening up a, a way of reconciliation with, uh, for sinners with a holy God as well as life eternal. So while the law is conditional, like a two-way street, the gospel is unconditional. And like all true gifts, again, it arrives unbidden. It's not leveraged. This is a savior who is given to those who don't deserve one. God's affection cannot be merited. And in the cross, the all-encompassing love of God speaks louder than his voice of condemnation, than the voice of the law. Now, much like 
capital L law uh, and little l forms of law. There exists a corollary between the capital G gospel of Jesus Christ and little g grace in human affairs. We see this borne out in our own lives and those of other people. Because when it comes to lifting the human spirit, nothing is more potent than love in the midst of deserved judgment. Grace proves time and again to be the force that inspires service and creativity and hope and vulnerability and new life. Remember, the gospel satisfies. It does not introduce expectations. If the law commands that we love perfectly, the gospel announces that we are perfectly loved. Ultimately, if the world is as merciless a place as it truly appears, and as merciless a place right now as, it, as teenagers are experiencing it, well then I don't think Christians have to work very hard to make this distinction come alive or breathe. So, because if your ears are only, you're habituated to hearing imperative demand and more and more and more and never enough, well, that melody of belovedness and of absolution, it sounds all the sweeter. Maybe even the difference between life and death. You see, in a life governed by the law, fear of defeat and threat of scarcity loom over every endeavor. In a life governed by the gospel, Nothing that needs to be done hasn't already been done. In the realm of the law, we must keep face and keep up appearances. In the realm of the gospel, we can laugh at ourselves. We can laugh at the face in the mirror, the one on social media. So you know you're in the realm of the law when you're tediously crafting emails with the right balance of seriousness and brevity and levity. But in the realm of the gospel, you're free to embarrass yourselves without fear of what brand of trouble our words might bring. While the law incites us always to point fingers at other people, the gospel provokes us to point the finger back at ourselves. So, that is sort of the distinction. Is it possible, to what degree is it possible for uh, young people to grasp this distinction? Uh, It is possible. And, you know, one of the the best articles I've ever read about this was written by Gil Cracky at the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham. He wrote The Law and the Gospel in Contemporary Youth Ministry. And he laid this out. He He talked about just how much the youth today, and this was written 10, 15 years ago, live in a world of law and its judgment. Again, young people are asking this question, who am I and who is God? But the experience, how they experience their peers and the world is the, the tests and, and, and you know, uh, transcripts and the making of teams and the exclusion at, of invitations to certain dances and things like that. that. That experience of the law leaves an indelible impression on them and on us, and we end up projecting that onto God. So we, we have to work as youth ministers, one of the great, we, we think sometimes that it's our job or the, 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 to, to, to enforce the law or to be the parent's um, agent in the kids' lives. I'm sure every youth minister has had that experience where you've talked to a well-meaning parent who really just wants you to keep tabs or get their kid to behave. And what you find out, though, is the kid is struggling under so much expectation that they don't really need another person, another voice in their life telling them to do more, to try harder, to live better. That what they need is a place where they can come clean and maybe even a person who can preach the gospel to them and not just more law, 
Not someone to act like the law doesn't exist, or the law isn't good and true, or not to read the Bible with the kid, but the voice that they're lacking is not the voice of the law. It's the voice of the gospel. Because that natural continuum of teenagers usually runs from a striving to meet the expectations of the law, the type A's, the high achievers, the kids who get into all the good schools, to a sort of a, a, to throwing in the towel, a, a kid who gives up, a perfectionist who just wants to go to sleep, or someone who li- responds to the law by living in rebellion or apathy. There's legalism on one end. There's licentiousness on the other. In both cases, your life is being dictated by the law. Now, a youth ministry that would be centered on law gospel, that sort of dynamic, would always be Christocentric because this is, this is what Jesus makes very little sense outside of the law and the gospel distinction. The, the law giver who fulfills the law on behalf of the lawbreaker. Uh, but it would also take the Bible seriously because this is rooted in Scripture. That kind of ministry would, would witness to our continual need of God in Christ, was strengthened by his spirit. And, you know, it's characterized sometimes when you hear people talk too much about the distinction between the law and the gospel, you get, you get accused of anything goes or antinomianism. Um, and yet, far from it, the, someone who is preaching the distinction between the law and the gospel takes very seriously the full weight of the law, and for that reason, the beautiful wholeness of the gospel, that radical fullness that God has reconciled himself to us while we were yet sinners, while we were convicted of the law, calling us to repentance and acceptance and salvation. Of course, for that reason, such a youth ministry is inherently relational rather than, say, programmatic, though programs are great, but it'd be relational because it is premised on the idea that God comes to us he doesn't wait for us to change. He comes to us in the midst of who we actually are. God takes the initiative in that work of salvation and justification. And that's youth ministry would follow that model with the youth worker going to where the kids are rather than waiting for them to come to, to him or her. Um, and um, there, there would, this would also be a... Um, a, a youth ministry that would sort of really revolve around freedom. Now, again, not freedom to sort of, hey, I can do whatever, you can't tell me what to do, because that's a lot of times a, a certain type of adolescent brain will hear the message of God's grace or the justification of the sinner. What they'll often hear is they'll, they'll take it and they'll immediately make it into a form of self-justification. They'll say, oh, that means mom can't tell me when I, I need to go to bed. That means um, I can do whatever I want, and it's all gravy. Now, you don't want to clamp down on a person's joy and, and a grasping of the, the true radical word that, yes, things have been taken care of. But to, to dwell on that superficial level of don't tell me what to do is to not really get the depth of what's going on. This is not so much about freedom from rules or consequences. These are, those are, those are ever-present, and especially as we remain sinners, they're important. No, but instead, the gospel brings us existential freedom, freedom from the fierce and insidious requirements of status and place and accomplishment and college and high school and the opposite sex, which are resultant 
uh, from the law and have no place in the gospel. Now this uh, conference, though, is about the story of grace. So I want to give two examples to close of the distinction of how this distinction works out in the lives of young people. And the first one I want to give is from uh, is a story that Arizona Bengals cornerback Dre Kirkpatrick told uh, on uh, that uh, wonderful show, Highly Questionable. And it's a great story of his own experience of his father and a time when the distinction between the law and the gospel clearly was understood in a very powerful way. Joining us at the beach today is Drake Kirkpatrick. All right, he plays for the Cincinnati Bengals, and he joins us on behalf of his 21 Kids Foundation, which aims to improve public health, promote educational opportunities, and enhance community development efforts in his hometown of Gaston, Alabama. Let's get to know him a little. Dre, what would you say was the most difficult part about growing up with a father who was a pastor? Uh, like I said, I mean, it was great, you know, because my, 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 my um, pops was very balanced. You know, he didn't force a lot of things on me. He didn't, you know, be over demanding. But, you know, like, you, you want to hang out with your friends. You want to go to a party. You know, you have to leave the party kind of early because, you know, you got to be at home at a certain time. And, you know, that's probably was the worst part, but for the most part, my dad was just real normal. You know, even though he was a pastor, he was very normal. Can you give us an example of your father pulling you out of a situation where you were like, I, 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 this is not good that I'm being pulled out of this? Uh, I can give you an incident. Uh, when I was in middle school, I got kicked out of school for um, marijuana. And nobody really knows about it, but, you know, I was sitting at the house and the next morning, Pops came back and told me to pack my bags, and it was more like, where are we going? Like, he didn't tell me, he didn't say nothing, he just told me to pack my bags, and I was just afraid um, that he was sending me off or he was getting rid of me. And we was driving down, he just reached over and told me, he was like, hey, where, wherever you want to go, I'm going to take you. And I didn't understand it at the time, but basically he was just letting me know, like, I know you think you by you being confined to Gaston, it's the only thing that, that you're used to, but you know, there is other things in this world that that can draw your attention the right way. And by him doing that, it changed my life forever. I went to New Orleans, went to the Georgia Dome, I mean the uh, the Superdome, and they had Deuce McAllister as their running back. And as I see Deuce, I just kept hearing his name like Deuce, like and it just was overwhelming to the point where I broke down and cried. And I told my dad when I got back to the room, I said, I want to play football. And that was the, the beginning stage of my life being changed. So all of that happened at once? Like he just packed the bags and you didn't know what, where you were going, what you were doing, you got your choice to go wherever you wanted to and you chose a football game? I chose New Orleans. I didn't choose the football game, I chose New Orleans. Um, but when, when we got down there, it was playing the Baltimore Ravens and that was the game that I just begged my daddy to buy me a ticket, and the ticket was fifty dollars. And I thought it was in the nosebleed. I went to the nosebleed. The guy told me, "Hey, your your ticket is on the front row, row row one, seat ten, exactly." Dre, did you think for a moment there, as your bags are packed, that you were getting sent somewhere? Did you think that like that, like you were getting taken somewhere, and you weren't going to be allowed to come back? Yes, I did. I did because the incident that I was in was very serious. And my dad, he, he did a great job of, because he could have he abandoned me, he could have, 
you know, could have punished me or destroyed me far as saying that I destroyed the family's name or, and things like that around the community. But my dad was, was he was for his son, and, and that's why I respect my dad to the fullest. Now, that is a beautiful example of someone who understands the distinction between the law and the gospel. He sees a son who has been gotten red-handed in trouble at school. has gotten kicked out. And um, he knows that in that moment to preach the law to this child, to be another voice of law, would be counterproductive. And this is almost like a Holy Spirit type thing. And so instead, he knows that this, this, this young man is in need of hearing uh, God's second word, which is he is primed and ready. He has been killed and needs to raise, be, be raised up. And this man, in his actions, he, he, he gives him total grace. And as a result, it's this, this story of going and it, it changes the rest of his life. And it, it increases his love for his dad. Now this is the great, see, people confuse the law and the gospel. They think that the law can produce a changed heart when the law can produce uh, repentance and sorrow, but it cannot inspire a better behavior. Only the gospel can do that. Judgment kills, uh, love uh, resurrects. And that is what we have in that beautiful passage. And so those who are trying to, trying to use the gospel to do what the law does or the law to do what the gospel does are going to have a really hard time in youth ministry. But I'll give you one other final example, and it's sort of similar, but it's one of my favorites. It comes from my friend Rod Rosenblatt, who is a Lutheran uh, minister and pastor and professor. And he tells the story of how when he was 16 years old, he wrecked the car that his father had bought him. Rod had been drinking, in fact, and his friends were all drunk. And so they've gotten to this accident, and Rod calls his dad, and the first thing his dad asks him is, are you all right? Rod assured him that he was fine. Then he confessed that he was drunk, naturally terrified of how his father might respond. Later that night, after Rod made it home, he he wept and wept in his father's study. He was embarrassed, ashamed, and guilty. The, the, The law had done its work. And at the end of the ordeal, his father asked him simply one question. And that question was, how about tomorrow we go and get you a new car? Now, what I'm trying to convey in this is that the state of our culture and the state of our uh, adolescent lives is that a lot more students, no matter how they may look on the outside, they're actually weeping in their father's study on the inside. They have, they have been crushed. They are afraid that there is no future for them, that life has completely, uh, uh, that they have, they have messed up once and for all, and there is no redemption for them. They feel alone by virtue of social media or by the pandemic. But what Rod says is that he's lived a lot of life. He's in his 80s now. Is that he became a Christian in that single moment. God's grace became real to him in that moment of forgiveness and mercy in a way that any number of sort of prohibitions about behavior never could have. It planted a seed for a lifetime of ministry and other-centered giving. And this freedom 
that was birthed through this act of the distinction between the law and the gospel, which is simply an act of grace, is the freedom to own up to one's own shortcomings, but with hope rather than despair. And that's my workshop for you. I'd love to talk more about it. There's a book called Law and Gospel Theology for Sinners and Saints that I co-wrote that's got a lot more material about this. But if you want to watch, there's so many movies with teenagers and with, it's not just parents, but it's also, it's, it's very potent in youth ministry, um, these, this distinction. It's not the only uh, part of theology or the Bible or ministry, but if, if you understand this distinction, um, you're going to um, go, you can not only appropriate it for yourself, uh, but it will be a lifetime of dynamic, interesting, uh, uh, non-exhausting, uh, spirit-filled ministry to real people, which is to say sinners like you and me. So thanks for listening, and I hope I get to meet you in person uh, someday soon. Thank you. And for you listeners, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Rooted Youth Ministry podcast. On behalf of all of us here at Rooted, my name is Davis Lacey. And for more resources designed to equip and encourage you to faithfully disciple students towards lifelong faith in Jesus Christ, I invite you to find Rooted on the web at www.rootedministry.com. This has been the Rooted Youth Ministry podcast, and we'll see you again soon.